This is a story about fish and their connections to water, the world around them, and most importantly, to us. Our guest in this episode studies water pollution for a living. She's taking us underwater. Well, not really. She's in studio. But she's here with the inside scoop on how what we do affects what's living in our lakes and rivers and why it matters. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's 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 let's, 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 let's talk, 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 talk 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 about, 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 about water. 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 water 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 is that it yeah <laughs> <laughs> you're listening to let's talk about water a podcast by the global institute for water security i'm your host jay familietti intro music <laughs> We have Karen Kidd in the Let's Talk About Water studio. She's come to us all the way from Hamilton, Ontario, where she's a professor in biology at McMaster University and the Jaroslawski Chair in Environment and Health. She runs a lab that studies contaminants and underwater ecosystems, zoning in on things like mercury and pharmaceuticals. Studying both means studying fish. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks so much for coming. We really appreciate it. Tell us. What makes fish a good indicator of how healthy our water systems are? Well, there's lots of reasons. The first one, and what I love to tell people, is that fish are not that different from humans. So some of the things that we use to improve our health, the pharmaceuticals that we take on a daily basis, they've been designed to be biologically active in people, and they can actually have biological effects in fish because our systems are not that different. So when fish are out swimming around in rivers with municipal wastewater discharges and there's pharmaceuticals in their water, that can have a, an effect on fish health too, which is often quite surprising for people. Can you give me an example there are things like antidepressants, so Prozac is a common one. There's anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen. There's anti-lipid drugs that will affect lipids in fish. Given what you just said to me, Karen, I realize that I'm a major offender. Uh, <laughs> I think we're, we're all guilty of that, especially <laughs> on Saturday morning or Sunday morning, you know, when we're suffering from the night before. Right, right. And the other, the other aspect about fish that makes them great to study is that they're longer lived. So they tend to reflect the conditions of all of the organisms and species living beneath them. So when the, the water quality is not good, the food supply is not good, you see that in the fish. They don't grow as well. They don't reproduce as well. So they're a really widespread, common indicator that's used to say, is this river healthy? So tell us, how does the health of fish affect humans? Well, what we do in my lab is we use fish as an indicator of water quality. So where the water quality is not good, the fish will reflect that. And I often like to say to people that when the fish are unhealthy, it's likely that humans may be unhealthy too. So they're a bit like a canary in a coal mine, which I know is a really common analogy, but... Um, where we see problems with fish, we should be a bit more concerned that there may be impacts on fish-eating wildlife and humans in that area. So they're an early warning that there may be bigger impacts from our activities. So this is sort of related to their impact on the, on the food web? 
Right, right. So we discharge a lot of different chemicals to waters that can affect not only the fish, but also the organisms the fish like to eat. And that can have a, a number of fallouts for humans. So a lot of us like to fish, even though I'm not very good at it. I love to go out and try and catch fish. A lot of people like to eat fish. And certainly there are some chemicals that accumulate in fish that could cause effects on either the birds or the mammals or humans that are eating those fish. So we certainly want to be aware of those issues and where fish are safe to eat and where they're not safe to eat. So this seems like something, <clears throat> I won't ask you your age, but um, I'll tell you mine. I'm 59. And for my entire life, this is something that I've been hearing about, whether we're talking about freshwater fish or saltwater fish. Um, this has been ongoing. And that's, you know, that's sort of how I got into uh, a career in water was thinking about the environment and thinking a lot about things like water pollution. So what are some of these contaminants? They fall into classes. I know pharmaceuticals are big. Mm -hmm. Some of those are endocrine disruptors. Which ones of these are you talking about and do you work on? Well, I, I work, I sort of have two streams, I guess, in my research program. One is around very persistent chemicals that concentrate up through the food chain. So as they go from algae to insects that eat algae to fish that eat the insects, they tend to build up and they end up at very high levels in the fish themselves. So things like mercury and some types of pesticides and some industrial chemicals. And I also work on, not, on less persistent chemicals like pharmaceuticals because the treatment plants were never designed to remove pharmaceuticals or estrogens. They were just designed to remove substances that consume oxygen or solids or some nutrients. And so, unfortunately, we've been discharging drugs to our waterways and one of, one of the results of that is that the male fish are getting exposed to these estrogens, the pill and natural estrogens that we excrete, and becoming feminized. And in the worst cases, they're producing eggs. A lot of the fish that are getting feminized, the males, it's because they're living right downstream of the discharge. There's not very good wastewater treatment in some areas. So they're getting a worst-case scenario, very high estrogen exposure. Um, so I'm sure our listeners are wondering, how do those pharmaceuticals, how do they get into the environment? How do they get to the point where they're in the water and the fish are, are uptaking them? So whatever drugs we're taking, uh, you know, you and I or whatever, if we have a headache and we take painkillers or if we're taking antibiotics for an infection, those drugs are not broken down completely in the body. So we excrete them in our urine and feces, and then whenever we flush the toilet, those drugs get washed into the sewer system. And they go to a wastewater treatment plant, but they're not completely broken down. So when the water is discharged from that plant, it contains dozens of different pharmaceuticals. All right. Okay. And some of them are more resistant to the wastewater treatment than others. You name it. It's in our wastewater affluence. Um, it's a real... That's pretty scary. It Well, it's, it is scary, but there's... You know, there's a growing recognition. A lot of pharmacies now have 
waste disposal programs where they'll take back unused medications and then those medications are incinerated. Mm, okay. So it's much better than flushing, flushing them down the toilet or putting them in the garbage. Right. Okay. So uh, another question that you, that you touched on, issue that you touched on, it sounds like our water treatment plants are not set up to remove these pharmaceuticals. Is that accurate to say that? Right. They, when they were engineered, they were engineered with different water quality issues in mind. But the good news is that there's new legislation coming into force next year, new standards for wastewater treatment plants across the country. And the result of that is that a lot of plants are upgrading their treatment and as you upgrade the treatment, a good byproduct is that you reduce the estrogens, you reduce the anti-epileptic drugs, the painkillers that are going out in the effluents. That is certainly good news. It is great news. Um, and my, I'm just going to add a, yeah, pet, a sure. pet peeve of mine, yep. and I'll say it because it's, it's one of those. There's a lot of examples of chemicals and products that we don't really need. And my pet peeve chemical is triclosan. And triclosan is put in soaps and it's marketed as an antimicrobial soap when we know that soap on its own is perfectly effective for cleaning hands and you don't need triclosan mm -hmm. in those products. Yet that chemical gets into rivers, it accumulates in fish. So I would hope that we would stop using chemicals and products that we don't really need and just focus on the ones that are, you know, essential for health and hygiene. It may be important to to point out that and, and maybe you've had this share this perspective. I think it's very difficult to anticipate what might happen in the future. So listeners might be wondering, well, why the heck don't our wastewater treatment plants, uh, why can't they filter out these pharmaceuticals? My thinking or my perspective on this is that, you know, we didn't really anticipate it, like the way we didn't really anticipate like right. microplastics. Right. And I agree. And, and another good news story is that at least in the U.S. and parts of Europe, and not yet in Canada, but it's coming, is that we're we're starting to think more of wastewaters as a resource rather than a waste. And it's a resource for things like phosphorus. It's a resource for energy. It's certainly a resource of water. And so as that mentality shifts, you know, and our treatment of wastewaters shifts from waste to resource, the benefit of that shift in mentality is going to be that we are going to capture more of the goods from the wastewater and treat it at a higher level and remove more of those kinds of contaminants that are impacting fish health. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just saw something, I think I saw it on Twitter, that we should change the name of our wastewater treatment facilities from waste, take out the word waste, wastewater, and um, uh, call them something like um, water resource recovery facilities. Yes. Exactly. Um, which, you know, really changes the perspective on what on what we're doing there. And it's super important. I think the days are gone when we were thinking about, you know, we can just pull out some of the nasty stuff and throw it somewhere and put the rest of the water back in the back in the river. I think those days mm -hmm. uh, around the world are 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 really are really numbered. So I have to ask this question then. So we've got the accumulation of these pharmaceuticals 
in fish and we eat those fish. Right. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for humans? When you think about how much is in a pill that we take and you think about what might be in the water or in the fish, it's physically impossible to consume as much drug in a fish or the water as you would take in a pill. Mm. Okay, so the the main role is that they are indicators of what is, uh, as you said earlier, they're integrating, right, the the discharge. They're representative. They're the canary in the coal mine. They're telling us that this is that this is a problem. I want to pivot now, okay, to talk about your work on mercury. Great. Yeah. So tell us about <laughs> it. Well, mercury is another. It's a natural metal. That's found in rocks and soils. But human activity, ever since we, w- we went through the Industrial Revolution, we've been releasing a lot of mercury to the atmosphere when we burn fossil fuels, when we produce cement, when we uh, have chloralkali plants, um, when we, gold- we mine for gold. Some of the artisanal gold mining uses mercury. And all of those activities, when it's in our batteries, our light bulbs, for example, we release that mercury to the atmosphere and we've increased the mercury in the atmosphere. And that mercury is carried by the air currents to remote areas and then it can be deposited onto lakes and streams in rainfall. When it gets into lakes and streams, the bacteria that are there can convert it into an organic form. And in this case, organic is not healthy. It stays in the body. So it tends to concentrate up from plants to plant eaters to fish to fish eating wildlife and humans. And when it gets at high levels in the fish or in the fish eating wildlife or in humans that eat a lot of fish, it can cause, it can impact the nervous system, the reproductive system, the immune system. And the good news for mercury is that we have a new convention that came into force in 2017 that's a global treaty and it's bringing over 100 countries together to address this issue and reduce the use of mercury in products, the trade of mercury, you know, the mining of mercury. It sounds, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like scientists like yourself are having a, a real positive impact. You're doing work, you're exposing these concerns, and governments are responding, and the international community mm-hmm. is responding. Is that accurate? Well, I think I think it's been driven in part by scientists, in part by the communities that have been impacted by mercury, um, by the policymakers, you know, there's just been a growing awareness that mercury is an issue we need to deal with. Yeah. And we've had a lot of success stories in, in the past around the ozone hole, for example. That's yeah. a great example with the Montreal Protocol of how the, the world came together to reduce ozone-depleting substances. Mm-hmm. And it worked because yeah, our right. ozone hole is much smaller. Yeah. So yeah. we definitely need those kinds of global treaties and conventions to drive change and to make sure our use of chemicals is as safe as it can be. Right. Yeah. So that's to me, is a real uh, positive development. I want to share with you a little anecdote 
uh, about the, the person that won the Nobel Prize or one of the people that won the Nobel Prize for doing the science that led to the discovery of the ozone hole. This is Professor Sherry Rowland at UC Irvine. And um, so he started the or co-founded the Earth System Science Department there. And I interviewed there and ended up getting a job there in 2001. And he came to my um, interview, my faculty interview Great. presentation. And I realized that I had a Nobel Prize winner in the audience, and I was completely intimidated. Oh, no. It was so <laughs> scary. But um, I got the job and worked there for about 16 years, and he Great. turned out to be just a, just a wonderful guy. Speaking of the connection to policy, right, he was a big leader um, and uh, – really pushed or uh, really communicated about, I mean, obviously, because we had the Montreal Protocol, he really worked hard on the communication about the potential uh, of the ozone hole. And the British survey, based on his work, went out and actually found that it existed. And he had to deal with things like death threats. Oh, uh, that's yeah. too bad. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, so... So, but he was a he was a strong guy. He's passed away now, but he was a strong guy who, who did some really important work and was not at all intimidated by, uh, by some of these. Global... We need more people like him. Yeah, yeah, we really do. So, speaking of people like that, you know, what other things give you hope in this kind of work? Because in the kind of work that both of us do, um, you know, it's pretty it's pretty serious business. Whether you're talking about environmental contamination and its impact on humans or things related to global change. I mean, it's it's pretty heavy. Um, so, what kind of things you know help you besides the uh, besides the medication that we're discharging into <laughs> river? How do you sleep at night? What kind of things give you hope? Well, I think there's also a growing awareness within pharmaceutical industries that they need to be better at manufacturing the drugs in you know and capturing the wastes that they're releasing or releasing less waste in their process and not impacting the waters downstream. So I think consumers have a lot of power, and I don't think they recognize that necessarily, but any product that you choose to buy or not to, to buy, is um, it weighs with companies, and I think more and more people want sustainable products. They want to know what's in their products, what they're getting exposed to, and uh, I'm hopeful that that movement will just continue to grow. Yeah, I so I agree. I think that consumers have a tremendous amount of power and it can be wielded to drive things in a sustainable direction. And we, we need to realize that and demand from these companies that uh, uh, some of their practices can no longer be tolerated uh, uh, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Those of us in the in the scientific community, in the environmental regulation community, when we see new products, we need to be thinking about how might that be breaking down and getting into the environment? Right. So sounds like constant vigilance. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We um, do. That was great. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you very much, Jay. You gonna do the air guitar again? No, good. Uh, that's just a one. That's a one off. Okay, yeah, it's just again. a it's just a one off. <laughs> I do not play the bass. No, no. Okay. You're listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast about the future of water and why you should care. It's a presentation of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. If you want to hear more, subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite app. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Let's Talk About Water. And if you want to find out more about the Global Institute for Water Security, head to our website, water.usask.ca. 
A thanks to Mark Ferguson, Amy Hergut, Morgan Broughton, Laura McFarlane, Jesse Widow, and media production at the University of Saskatchewan campus, and to Chelsea Laskowski for helping put the podcast together. I'm Jay Famoyetti. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.